We are back for another Codex Cantina episode, which is just two guys talking literature, trying to make sense of it. Now, we spend a lot of time pushing ourselves, trying to understand this literature, organizing it, and then bringing it to a conversational approach for how we deliver it. And we've absolutely put more money in it than we've gotten out of it. So if you guys are considering supporting this channel, we'd appreciate you checking out our Patreon link at patreon.com slash the Codex Cantina, as well as Ko-Fi of ko-fi.com slash the Codex Cantina. It all helps us in running the show, along with commercials, guys. So thank you so much. We're going to do a quick commercial break, and then we'll get on with the rest of the episode. Let's talk about one of the most popular American classics. I would prefer not to. <laughs> uh, all right, guys. Welcome to the Codex Cantina, where I am Una. And my middle name is almost Bartleby crypto if you've been here before welcome back and if you are new we take a conversational approach to literature breaking it down and hoping to get some of the hidden nuggets and meanings that our authors spend years crafting and putting into these stories if that sounds like you hit that subscribe button to join us and as always we start off with publication information bartleby the scrivener was published anonymously in 1853 in putnam magazine and the reason this was is because the first two major publications of mr melville were not so hot they were slammed by critics readers didn't understand it they didn't like moby dick they didn't like uh, billy bud and so he asked them hey I still need to get paid. Can you publish this anonymously so I can still have work going out there? And it's kind of crazy to think that if he hadn't done that, this might have been lost to obscurity. And if you want to follow along with H&M's story here, you can check out the doobly-doo down below where we'll have a link for you to listen and read for free. The doobly-doo. That's a new one. This story regardless of you know him needing to kind of like obfuscate who was writing it because he didn't think anybody would want to pick it up, is hysterical. This is this is a great story that is it had me on the edge of my seat laughing sometimes. My wife also looked over me when I was reading it um, the second time through because I enjoyed it that much. And she's like, what's funny? And I was like, you just you got to read this story. Do you think he intended it to be funny or do you think it meant to be serious for the time period of what was changing in the mid 19th century in the world? You know, and that's the beauty of literature is you can make it whatever makes sense for you. <laughs> And for me, I don't know if I care if he intended it to be funny or not, because it's hysterical. And and to your point, it's about a very serious thing. Like, this dude's a law copyist. Like, what's a scrivener for people that didn't know? It's a person that just kind of copies documents. Like, writing was more common, but still not as prevalent as it was today. And it was a very specialized kind of, like, role, I guess. Well, I shouldn't say specialized, but it was a role to copy. And it's kind of boring. Right. Yeah. I mean, they couldn't just use the printing press for these legal documents. Almost like they have to be notarized. This is a very serious job, a very important job for legal documents. And I interpret it very funny as well. And maybe that's just our perspective. I don't know if old H&M was trying to be funny. Or maybe he was. <laughs> I just, I don't know. It, yeah, I'll get into it. Let's do plot and move on from there and, and, and analyze the uh, the Scrivener out of this. So our narrator, a successful lawyer on Wall Street, has three clerks that work under him. We learn about each of them, how they drink half the day or are really young. <laughs> and he has more work that needs to be done and thus hires Bartleby, the Scrivener. At first, Bartleby does his job. However, soon enough, he begins refusing to do certain parts of his work altogether. He instead performs his dead wall reveries and stares at the wall. <laughs> 
The narrator consults with the other clerks, but fails to come to conclusion on how to get Bartleby to do work. He flat out refuses his request and simply replies, I simply prefer not to. (laughs) I would prefer not to. (laughs) Soon, the narrator decides to move his office and thus leave Bartleby behind. However, the new tenants in the building are furious as Bartleby just kind of stays there and won't leave. (laughs) And also refuses all of their requests. Soon, Bartleby is arrested, taken to the Halls of Justice, a.k.a. the Tombs. And the narrator begins to feel compassion or maybe curiosity a little bit for Bartleby. Or guilt. Or guilt. Or guilt visits him in the jail, right? So Bartleby is free to explore the open area but simply prefers not to, and just stares at the wall. Later, the narrator visits Bartleby, but this time when he visits, he finds him dead by the wall. The narrator ponders rumors that the man was forced out of a job at the dead letter office. The lawyer finishes with his line, Ah, Bartleby. Ah, humanity. Ah, humanity. (laughs) Ah. I definitely want to talk about that ending sentence, and I'm sure everybody has their speculation, but I... I think that my interpretation might be a little bit different than what a lot of people because of the exclamation points in there. Well, we might be a little bit remiss, too, because we started this conversation and we actually didn't tell the truth. We said the story was called Bartleby the Scrivener, but it is not. It is Bartleby the Scrivener, a wall, a story of Wall Street. So, right. So uh, to your point of what did, you know, H&M, you know, intend here, I don't know, but we have a funny story and he calls it Bartleby, but is it really Bartleby's story? Well, it's definitely not Bartleby's journey. I think it's the unnamed narrator story of maybe his growth or maybe old H&M is telling us what is changing in America, uh, is changing in the world. And that how we're supposed to treat one another is is being altered by Wall Street and the greed or the industrialization. I don't know. So, crypto, my history teacher, at this point in American history, how was the country reacting to Wall Street? It was kind of like a dichotomy, really, of people that were still stuck in the idea of an agrarian society versus the idea of industrialization as we're moving forward. We're going to get trains soon. We're going to get cars, electricity. The The world is really ramping up faster in the large cities and in the urban areas. Those are changing drastically, but in the rural areas, not so much. And there is kind of this, not battle per se, but this definitely changing in American culture and ideology in the urban early to mid 19th century to your point where we've started to get some railroads but but they're not prevalent yet and a lot of americans some not all but but a lot of americans are opposed to the idea of centralized banking and wall street's becoming this central area where that's happening yeah and to your point of that that there is this increase in the idea of an organized society outside of farming is more and more people young men and especially young women are leaving the farms they're tired of working for mommy and daddy and being stuck on the farm with their 15 brothers and sisters they're moving to the big city and what are they doing they're getting jobs and these new factories and becoming a cog in the wheel, just, you know, another, you know, rut in the machine. And that can be very daunting on somebody's psyche. And it, it can be, you know, frustrating to be stuck in that, you know, 
seamless job that just doesn't go anywhere. And maybe that's what, you know, Herman here is trying to tell us that we really need to be connected as people together. At least that's kind of interpret it of the narrator trying to help Bartleby throughout the story. Multiple times he tries to help him. And what is Bartleby's response every single time? I simply prefer not to. And that's what vexes our narrator too. Because I, you said he's trying to help. And I don't disagree with that at, at certain points. But I think even more prevalent is the narrator's trying to understand Bartleby. How can this guy just say no? Because he's almost like afraid to make decisions, you'll notice. He won't fire these guys that are drunk half the time that, you know... <laughs> You have this, this turkey and nippers crack me up. It's like they're the same person, like it reversed at different times of the day. It's hilarious. They they carry the story. Tweedledee and Tweedledum, right? For sure. Oh, yeah. And then you've got the young boy who didn't even make a choice to go work here like his parents set him here. There's a lot of people not making choices in this. And even as Bartleby makes the choice to not do anything, what does the boss do? He's like, well... I think I should fire him, but does he come out and do it? Like he's got to have like a meeting and like, hey guys, what what do you think about this? Like even him lacks the choice. And I think this speaks to that idea of, as you were saying, they're all cogs in the machine. They're all doing their part. They don't get to make a choice. They've got a role they have to fulfill and they perform that. Yeah, it makes me think, is the narrator jealous of Bartleby? Is, is What is his fascination with him that Bartleby can just not care about these things when it's like, no, the American idea is you get a job and you earn money and you take care of your family and you move up, move up, move up, move up. And Bartleby's just like, I prefer not to. I'm happy. I'm content <laughs> where I am. And as like a young, ravenous American, you know, lawyer moving up in the, you know, grand scheme of things in American business world, he can't fathom that. He struggles with that. Now, some critics have pointed out that while you know, Moby Dick is his, his, you know, magnum opus, as you pointed out, as a failure at the time. Critics have commented that could this be a commentary on Melville himself wanting to write, you know, these big, epic, philosophical books that he wasn't able to. You know, adventure stories were popular at the time. He was being forced to read this. A common way that a lot of critics kind of attack this, on top of being the cog in the wheel, is... Is he being forced into being that cog and he can't do the things that he wants to, like write the big epic Moby Dicks that nobody wants to buy, <laughs> at least at the time? <laughs> For sure, yeah. And if you kind of think of it that there's these two different personalities of – uh, you know, an, a younger America versus maybe an older America, maybe not necessarily like an age age thing, but Bartleby is kind of playing it safe and he's taking the easiest path, the path of least resistance. And Melville himself is not, he's challenging, he's writing these stories that people aren't used to reading and he's not getting anywhere with it. And that's kind of the same with our unnamed narrator here too. And that just difference of personalities. And I think the what they want out of life ideologies is very, very uh, disparaging, I guess, between Bartleby and the narrator. So something else that kind of pops up a lot is dead. Like the, the feeling of dead, characters being described as dead, Bartleby with his dead wall reveries. It's all over the place. Did you have much of a takeaway on that one? Oh, yeah. I loved how ghostly descriptive this story is. If I hadn't known better... I would almost think that this was some sort of horror story. Throughout their uh, quote, it says, I'm going upstairs to my old haunt. 
it, it's even described Bartleby as haunting this place. The way he's described is very gaunt and, you know, his slender cheekbones and uh, his pale complexion. There is a lot of symbology and adjective descriptors in here, almost giving it that, you know, ghost story, horror-esque. What's interesting, too, is there's a couple of religious references in here. Um I'm not sure everybody would pick up on them, but of course there's the usual uh, three that you see a lot of places. How many clerks were there before Bartleby? There were three. How many days did Bartleby meditate on a uh, suggestion from the narrator? It's three. And one of the last lines near the epilogue here, we have, ah, he's asleep, ain't he? With kings and counselors, murmured I, which is of course a reference to the book of Job. Now, if you read the book of Job, do you, well, do you recall kind of what's happening at that point in time? Oh, man, isn't that like the oldest book in the Bible? I can't remember that far back. <laughs> it's worth mentioning, at this point in the Bible, when this this line comes up, Job hadn't spoken for seven days and seven nights. He was almost on this protest in the same way that Bartleby just refused to acknowledge and engage with people. Like some people have even talked about from a criticism standpoint, is Bartleby meant to represent civil disobedience, right? Like just refusing to go oh, along yeah. with being the cog in the wheel, uh, he's even like a pro like a protester staying still and not moving. The cops have to come and remove him. Like again, very different times between now and then, but you have those comparisons. Well, Job was on a similar journey. He hadn't spoken for seven days, seven nights until finally at this moment, this comes up and he starts to question death. And again, we have all these references to death in this story too. Yeah, for sure. Cause this is the chapter in which Job wished he had never been born. He considers the vaniness, the he considers the vanity and the emptiness of the lives of the folks that are dead, and the the kings and the castles that have come to ruin. You can't take your castle with you; it sits in ruins. What do you do with your riches? Your riches can't come with you to heaven, and that sort of thing. And this is important because it's starting to appear to Job that death is the great equalizer, right? And to me, Bartleby is going through this similar journey where he's starting to see death everywhere. And he's starting to realize that why be a cog in the wheel and have, you know, basically the same thing that would happen to a king who is rich. And I think this is, again, not totally supported in the text, so we're stepping outside a little bit, but why put this Book of Job reference here? I think we're meant to maybe look at Bartleby in the sense of, is he trying to step out of that role and make more out of his life and put value into his life? Because he knows that death is the one thing we can't escape we all must face it at some point in our lives but there is a spot inside of the story where at the very end they're they're talking and the narrator says and see it's not so sad a place as one might think look there's the sky and here's the grass um and you said that he just stares at the wall and he does actually reply and he says i know where i am and earlier in the story one of the clerks had said i think sir he's a little loony but Bartleby seems to understand his plight. He seems to understand what's going on with him. It just nothing in the world excites him anymore. And I don't know how to take that. Now, to the other point you made, I do agree 100%. There's a lot of, of death imagery. It's abundant throughout the entire story. Mm -hmm. yeah. And you mentioned in the plot summary that where do they take him? The tombs, you know, where you would put, you know, mm -hmm. an Egyptian mm -hmm. mummy or something. So th there is all of this, this haunting and this dark thing as we learn what happened to Bartleby in his life. He lost his job that 
was, you know, maybe near and dear to him and that broke him. And that ink happened a lot to people on Wall Street where their job was their entire identity. And when they lost that job, they lost who they were. And maybe that's what happened to Bartleby. And maybe it's kind of a lesson here that old H&M is giving us of, you know, don't be just one thing. You have to open up yourself to maybe being a little bit more. At least that's kind of how I took it, especially with that last line. Um, you know, ah, Bartleby, ah, the humanity. And I know there's an exclamation point there. But I don't think he was exclaiming it. I think that he was focusing inward of, I've learned a lesson here from this man, and it cost him his life for me to learn this lesson. So that's a good question. What do you guys out there think was the big lesson that you took away from this? We'd love to hear from you down below. Again, we're going to leave a playlist down below where we will be tackling Moby Dick in the future. So depending on when you're watching this video, we, we, we may be sailing the seas with H&M here. That sounds like you. We'd love to check it out. Let's move into our final thoughts. Crypto, what do you think about this one? Uh, no number for me. I think this one is a masterpiece by a master author. Uh, I know we don't give out a lot of numbers anymore, and maybe that you know is for a good thing. Uh, this is worth a read. I think this is a fantastic story. It's funny, and you know that we are always going to give positive praise when a story is funny because that's something that you have to allow yourself to do is laugh at these stories. And as we were talking about him, I just, you know, I, I keep giggling to myself on the inside of old turkey and nippers and, you know, them just acting shenanigans. I, if I had to sum up this story, imagine one part office space where they can't kick a guy out because he's too crazy. And the other one is these woofle Wall Street guys <laughs> in the, the, the office just making all these shenanigans that are making everybody laugh and have a great time. So it's worth checking out. So recommended, if you will. Guys, we appreciate you spending some time with us today. We post videos every Monday and Thursday. Hit that subscribe button to join us on the journey. Una out. Peace. Or I would rather not. <laughs> <laughs>